Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Thank you guys so much for being here this morning. Really appreciate it. Glad to see your wonderful and beautiful faces. Here we are, a balmy 60 degrees midsummer. Aren't you just loving it? Isn't it wonderful? Uh, today, I'm going to do something a little bit strange. So uh, you, guys, you guys are fans of like vulnerability, right? You know, like you've probably heard Brene Brown chatted up about it. I don't know, maybe. Uh, I feel like that's like a really prized thing in our society today. We really like that, people that can be vulnerable. You know, that little bit of vulnerability can make you trust someone a little bit more. Notice in some industries, not, this, not that way, though, you know? Like your pilot never gets on and he's like, hey, guys, just so you know, I'm not really feeling confident about this flight today, so I uh, just want to be open with you guys. Or tattoo artist being like, I don't really feel good about this right now, you know, but, you know, it's my job, so I guess I'll lean into it. Uh, that's about the energy I'm bringing into this sermon today, so be prepared, all right? Uh, I love getting up here and trusting in the Holy Spirit and God's Word and hiding fully behind it and coming up here with confidence and saying, hey, this is what this says. I'm not there right now. I'm, I'm maybe 70% on this one. What's really interesting is I thought I was really solid, and then some very godly biblical people that I walked through it with were like, no, no, that's not it at all. So uh, I'm very, very suspicious right now. Uh, all of that to say, uh, we are going to trust in God's word this morning, and hopefully I don't get in the way with it. We're going to trust in the Holy Spirit working in each and every one of your hearts and hope that I don't get in the way with it. And also just trust. Uh, this is kind of an interesting thing that I probably never, ever talk about, but it's something very intentional about what we do. Uh, very often we'll be, someone will say to me something like, okay, so we have the worship gathering today, uh, and so Josh is going to bring the word, as if that is like the heart of it. Like everything else is kind of like a build up and a ramp down, and that is 100% not the case. So even if you waste your time for the next 25 minutes with me, uh, you have still done well and spent your Sunday being with the people of God, singing truths about God to God, uh, hearing the word of God. In fact, something that we started very early on in the life of Dwell Church is reading the passage that Cash does every Sunday, or the MC does every Sunday, uh, reading the passage before we get into it. So if for nothing else, you have heard something true today, I can say up until this point, truth has been commu communicated to you, and then we celebrate communion uh, and continue singing after the gathering, and so, yeah, take this for what, for what you will. Have I given enough caveats to say this is going to be a waste of your time? No one has actually gotten up and walked out yet, so uh, we're just going to go ahead and jump right into it. Today, we are talking about anger and really asking ourselves the question, what do we do with it? Now, I'm under the impression that we are getting better and better at understanding and naming our emotions, uh, but not necessarily better at dealing with them. That's really sort of like the question at the heart of all of this. We're sort of like plumbers. We come up and there's like this geyser coming up out of the ground and we're like, yeah, you got a problem. That'll be $2,000. Thank you very much. Like, that's kind of what we do with our emotions, right? We're like, hey, uh, there's something wrong here. I can diagnose it. I can say, hey, this is not right. This is confusing, but... It's very difficult to actually figure out what to do with it. We even have all this self-awareness and personality profiles and emotional intelligence and all these things. But very often, if you're anything like me, I find myself trying to figure out what do I do with emotions. Sometimes you get like blindsided, like, well, where did that feeling come from? And then you're like, well, what am I supposed to do now? Is it a good feeling, a bad feeling? Am I supposed to like sort it out? Like, can I dig a little bit deeper and figure out what it is about? Or can I even understand it? And sometimes it is just very, very difficult. And so today... 
We're going to actually ask the question, is it, is it okay to feel angry? Is it okay to feel angry a little bit or maybe for a little bit of time? Uh, is it okay to feel angry at different people or different things? When is anger appropriate? When is it not appropriate? Is it a, is it a sin? Is it not good? We're going to try and sort of like wade through all of those questions. And the reason why we have to do that today is because Jesus says something so crazy. He says, hey, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder each other. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we get that. We get that, Jesus. I'm saying to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So we've got to do something with that. So before we fully get into this, let me pray one more time and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us as we journey through the word today. Dear God, we ask that you would be with us. God, we know that you are here with us in this room, God, and we ask that you would just illuminate our hearts and our minds and our souls to your truth today. God, don't let me get in the way, uh, but instead your truth shine through. And God, I just ask that supernaturally you communicate to every single person in this room exactly what they need to hear so that they might be a better follower of you. God, give me words to speak. Give us all ears to hear the word that you have for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So today we're beginning a passage of scripture that I like to call the you've heard it said. So for six different little topics, Jesus goes, you've heard it said, and then he says, but I say to you. Uh, If you were here last week, hopefully you heard that Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to actually make it full and to make it complete. And so with these, like you've heard it said, he starts off with the law, and then he shows the way that he's actually going to make it full and going to make it complete. And so today he starts to tell us what that looks like with murder or with uh, anger. He says in verse 21, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. What's interesting about that is I feel like the response of the Jewish people standing there around Jesus when he says that is like, yeah, you could say we've heard it said also is written on a 10 commandment. I mean, it was carved into a tablet of stone. We take that one pretty seriously, Jesus, right? Kind of a big deal. Jesus is like, good, you've heard about it. Okay. But verse 22, but I say to you, That everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the fire or to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That brings us to the first instance of something that we're going to repeat over and over again over the next six weeks as we're going through all of these you've heard it said. Is that Jesus cares more about the heart than the action. Do you see that little shift happening? So it it starts off with murder, which is just an action that everybody can point to and be like, look, he murdered that guy. And then he brings it all the way back to something that's just happening completely internally. He says, whoever is angry with his brother. This is something that you can't see. And Jesus is doing something to fulfill the law here that is just so, so very important. Because while the law was sufficient for what it was, while it was good that they set the, the commandment that you should not murder, that God put that in front of his people, it was not actually enough to get to the heart of mankind. It's not actually enough to, to pierce down into the inside and actually speak to who we are. Jesus is saying that while the action is important, the heart is even more important. That while killing a person is bad, and we can all agree not great for the person, you know, that you end up killing, right? That's not good. That hating that person, speaking ill of that person, using hateful language towards them is also bad. This is because sin is toxic. Now, sin is just anything and everything that is against God's good plan for the universe and for you. 
The idea there being that God created human beings and made them to live a certain way. And every time we live in sort of opposition or in reaction against that, that we're actually in sin. That sin is toxic. And it eats you up from the inside. It gets inside, makes its home inside of you, and begins to destroy you. <clears throat> Have you ever heard of this term called solipsism? Solipsism, that's kind of a fun one, right? Uh, it's like the favorite philosophy of narcissists, I think, right? So it's basically this idea that all you can really prove in life is that you exist. There's nothing else that you can really, like, justifiably prove. It sort of takes, I think, therefore I am, and just sort of, like, stretches it out, and it's like, well, that's about all that I have, right? Uh, basically, it's this idea that, like, you can only vouch for yourself because you know you, and you know you have thoughts, and you know you have feelings, you know how you have all this stuff inside of you, but you can't really vouch for anyone else, right? So it's kind of like this is the matrix, and you're the only one in it, right? Everybody else is just those little green things floating down, up and down, or something like that. Maybe, like, this is a video game, and everyone else is an NPC, a non-player character. They're there to simulate reality for you and populate the game but they're not real in the sense that you are real, right? You know, in a video game, for those of you guys who are big gamers, uh, you sort of walk up and you're like, hey, you look like a person, a character, and they're like, would you like some wheat, sir? And you're like, how's your day? And they're like, would you like some wheat, sir? That's kind of like the idea. So the idea is that you are real. Everyone else is just this non-player character uh, that like, is just out there sort of existing to sort of fill up your reality. Now, there may be, that may sound crazy, right? And, but there are actually people that believe this. They're probably monsters as human beings, right? Because you think that nobody else exists. But there are actually people that really, really think that this is true. And I, for one, am 90% sure that it is not true. Now, I'm not going to go a full 100% because who can know, right? Like, I know that I'm real, but I'm not really sure about the rest of you cats, all right? This is the only thing that would explain the fact that none of you have gotten up and walked out, out of, after that preamble, right? Like, the only thing that could possibly explain that is that you all exist just to sort of serve my reality. Even that uncomfortable laugh that you just gave me was probably evidence that you are NPCs programmed to do that, right? Anyway... I don't want to get lost too much on that. But it brings us to this important question that you can only ask as a part of a sci-fi hypothetical experiment. If, if that were the case, would these things be wrong? If I were to murder an NPC, would that be like a wrong thing? If I were to hate someone else, would that actually be wrong? Like it feels like it it wouldn't really matter, right? It's just pixels. It's just programming. But instead, Jesus here is saying the exact opposite. He's saying yes. He's saying that even if there is nothing that actually happens to another person, there are still things that you will be liable for judgment for. So even, even if a sin just sort of like lives just right up here, doesn't even affect anyone else. Nobody even knows that it's out there. Nobody can even like see this on your face. You're not carrying around this badge saying, hey, you know, I have this anger building up inside of me or any of the other sins that we're going to talk about through the next few weeks if you've heard it said. Jesus is saying even if that's all that it ever gets to, it's still harmful. The idea then being that there are no victimless sins, even the ones that stay completely inside of you. Sin is actually bad for the victim and for the perpetrator. Sin is like trying to murder someone with a radioactive knife. Even if you succeed, you've now been carrying around this toxic thing for so long that now you are going down too. 
I was thinking a lot about radioactivity uh, this past week, like you do, you know, <laughs> like I was just sitting around, because this idea just sort of like grabbed my head and I couldn't really like stop thinking about it. Like, why in the world would Jesus care about what's going on inside of me as much as he cares about what's happening when I murder someone else? Radioactivity truly is the best analogy. If you saw that Chernobyl special that came out a few years ago, these dudes that came in, uh, Chernobyl was this big react nuclear reactor that started melting down everything, so these dudes had to come in for the cleanup, and they didn't know it completely, but at some level they knew that just by existing in that space, they were actually shortening their lifespan. That by exposing themselves to this radioactivity, by trying to make sure that the place didn't melt down and kill half of Europe, they know that they were walking into a place where they were just uh, exponentially increasing their risk for cancer. Because basically, when you get near radiation, it hits all of your cells and causes them to start breaking down at a molecular level. They start, like, breaking down, and because of that, tumors pop up. Uh, you get rapid growth of cells where they try and sort of, like, fill in in between. Uh, there's even this thing that I found really interesting called cellular immortality in that, like, some of your cells, because they uh, lose the part of them that tells them this is the time when you're actually supposed to die, they'll actually just keep on growing and growing and growing forever, and that's just sort of what kicks in, you know, the cancer that pops up. And here's why I think that is relevant, because I think when you are truly angry with someone, when you are allowing that anger to be inside of you and to inhabit you, really when you have any type of sin, that you're just allowing sort of free space in your head, and it stays in there, it's a little bit like handling radioactive things. Maybe you don't feel it. Maybe you don't feel any different. Maybe you don't feel like it's actively destroying you. It's not causing you sort of immediate pain or any of the other signs that our body gives us uh, to know that something is harmful inside of us, but instead it is actually eating away at us. And it's devouring us from the inside out. And when you are harboring anger inside of yourself, when you're giving it a home, it is actually destroying you from the inside out. It is harming you even when you aren't murdering anyone. So what do we do as a response to this? I think Jesus actually gives us some practical tips. First, we have to recognize anger for what it is. Jesus here explicitly lays out these feelings and actions. Let's read 22 uh, again. It says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry, so that's action number one, or internal action, I suppose you could say. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Anger, insults, calling someone a fool. These are the things that when they pop up, you need to actually sort of recognize what they are. Now, it's interesting here, Jesus is not saying, hey, we should add these to the law code and bring them over to, you know, the actual judicial council of the day. He's not saying that. In fact, as you can tell by the last one, liable to the hell of fire, he's talking about in a more eternal and spiritual form of judgment. He's saying that you will be liable and responsible for these things on a cosmic scale. And so you need to be able to recognize what they are. First is angry. Second is insults. And third is whoever says, you fool. Now, you fool is kind of like a, a quasi-cuss word back in the day. I know, Bible, kind of racy. Sorry about that. For those of you guys who have sensitive ears, I know I just said it, you fool. It kind of meant like blockhead. 
which I found a really interesting thing. Like, I saw it in, like, multiple different commentaries, and I was like, are all these dudes reading Charlie Brown? Like, what's going on, right? It's kind of like you're empty-headed. Uh, there's nothing going on upstairs. Your elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. Few colors short of a crayon. Isn't, isn't that something? I don't know. A few bulbs. Five, whatever. You get it, right? I don't even want to say these things because they're bad, right? So anyway, uh, whoever says those things to or about another person is liable to the hell of fire. So the first step is actually recognizing those things and naming them for what they are. This might be challenging for some of you guys. Uh, when I was growing up, I didn't really have feelings. It was more just like I was like either happy or hungry. Those were kind of like my two emotions. Uh, and those were all I really needed, I thought, in life. And then I grew older, and I was like, huh, that's something strange that's happening inside of me. But because of that, sometimes I feel like it's hard for me to actually name my emotions. It's hard for me to actually, even when I feel something pop up inside of me, be like, Oh, that's, that's actually me feeling angry. And then you have to do the real work of asking, like, well, why is that the case? Where did it come from? Where, what is happening with all of that? Why did I do that? Why do I feel that way? And Jesus here is saying something really important. He's connecting that feeling, maybe the feeling that causes you to insult, the feeling that causes you to, to, to say you fooled someone, but we're just going to call it anger, I guess, for the rest of the time. So that, that feeling of anger, he's actually connecting here to murder. Which is a strange thing. Probably doesn't feel that way to us, right? We aren't regularly thinking like, oh, that guy cut me off in traffic. I'm going to murder that guy. But Jesus here is actually saying that somehow those two things are intertwined. Like through the rest of these, you've heard it said, he's going to take something really sort of extreme. Like the very next one, he's going to talk about adultery. And he's going to say like, you guys all agree adultery is bad, right? Like you heard about that. I'm saying you shouldn't even lust after another human being. And so what he does is he takes those sort of two feelings. One is sort of like the end result of letting that feeling live. And then he takes the sort of like birth of that feeling. And he says, actually, both of these things are unhealthy. And he's doing that with murder and anger here. One commentary actually said, the feeling that left unchecked would eventually lead to murder. That's how they defined what this anger actually is. It's kind of like trying to teach a toddler about eating healthy food. You're like, no, that pixie stick is not technically as bad as you eating an entire chocolate cake, but you really should like think about it. They come from the exact same thing. And it's difficult, especially when you're thinking about teaching a toddler, because you're like, they don't put those two things together, right? They're just two sort of separate, delicious, and delightful things. And in the same way, here, Jesus is actually tying something everyone recognizes as bad, such as murder, and then saying the root of that is also bad, and that root is actually anger. We've got to be able to see it as bad first before we can do anything with it. Before I talk about that, <clears throat> I, feel, I would feel remiss if I did not take... Probably a 30-minute off-note uh, off kind of little jog here. This is really, I think, where the confusing part comes in. Uh, Jesus here, it seems to me, is freely associating anger with murder and saying that this is something that is bad and you should not have it. It says, whoever is angry with his brother should be liable to judgment. Now, you could sort of go off on a little tangent about the brother. Like, is it only when you're mad with your brother? Is it only, you know, I'm sure it doesn't mean like actual brother. So then it's maybe people who are inside of your spiritual community. Now, just a second ago or a second later in some of these you've heard it said, he's actually going to say, hey, you know those people that you think of as enemies? You should actually, if they slap you on the face, you should turn and give them the other cheek too. So I don't even know that he's giving you much license to people that you would, or to be angry at people that you wouldn't call your brother. 
so I'm not necessarily sure if we should hang up on that necessarily. But I think <clears throat> all of this is going to get a little murky and muddy. The confusing thing that we have is when we hear this, we start thinking about this idea of righteous anger. Now, uh, if you've been a part of a church before and been a part of a church very long, you've probably heard this phrase. Like, I've been thinking about it a lot this week, and it's strange how sort of, like, common it is to be a, like, non-biblical phrase. You never see those two words together, righteous anger, and yet we hold it up as, like, a tenet of our theology, you know? And uh, the scary thing about that is that if it's not true... Let's just assume. Now, I, I'm asking you. I'm asking you for just a brief moment. Just tear down all the stuff that you've been taught about anger. Let's just kick it out of our brains for just a minute, and let's start with a fresh slate. Like just, it's going to be a difficult sort of like mental exercise, especially if you're very like pro-righteous anger. But just if it's not true, would it not stand to reason that we, as sinful, selfish human beings would so desperately want it to be true so that it would justify these feelings of anger that we have inside of ourselves. Whenever you find something like that in Scripture, you've got to be, got to be, so exceptionally careful with it. Here Jesus is saying something that is almost impossibly hard in our minds, and he says, Whoever is angry will be liable to judgment. Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Like, do you, do you hear the harshness in that? It's almost as harsh as saying, uh, if your eye causes you to sin, you should pluck it out, which he's going to say just a paragraph after this. So I'm saying, I'm setting all of that up to say, like, man, be terribly afraid. Anytime Jesus says something and you want to come back and be like, that's too hard, that doesn't make any sense, so I've actually got to take it down a little bit of a notch, like, Far be it from us if we hear this phrase and think to ourselves that what Jesus is saying is who is angry except in certain circumstances when you're okay in this place, like all these different caveats. That is a terribly frightful thing. Now, I'm not saying that righteous anger as an idea is wrong. I am just saying, man, we better be sure. We better be sure it's right. For those of you guys who uh, would espouse this idea of righteous anger, which might still be me. That's why I'm like, it's weird that I'm like 70% on this. Like, I just, I'm not 100% sure. I think I have always taken that to believe uh, to be a thing. Uh, here's 10 seconds of biblical exegesis as to why even the things that we cite as evidence for why we should have anger sometimes uh, might not necessarily be true. Uh, object number one, first off, when Jesus comes in and flips the table, we always read that as a story like, hey, he comes into the temple, people were doing wrong things. He flips the tables because he was so mad and chases them out. Uh, a, on that, first off, uh, just because Jesus did something does not mean that we can do something, right? So uh, just because Jesus forgives sins does not mean that you get to forgive sins. It would also stand to reason that the only person who has never done anything wrong might have a little bit more of a standing to be angry at people than us who uh, do stuff wrong all the time. Uh, but even in that case, which is the primary sort of test case, it does not actually say that Jesus was angry in that moment. We sort of read that into the text. Now, it might be a fair reading. It's tough to flip tables and chase people out uh, without having anger, I suppose, but I don't know. 
second off, uh, there is a passage in Mark chapter 3 where it says Jesus is angry. Again, uh, he has the moral standing in every possible situation so that such he might be able to be angry in situations when you and I cannot. The final example comes from Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul quotes Psalm 4 4 and says, Be angry and do not sin. Now, what's really interesting about that one, we went on the longest deep dive and I am still in the middle of it. Uh, Ray and I are going to write a book about this one day, so just be prepared. It's coming out. Uh, Here's what's really interesting. Paul says that, and then a few sentences later, he says, but put away all of these things from yourselves, wrath, malice, anger, and lists out a few other things. So it's really interesting right there in that passage. He says, be angry and do not sin, which is like, that's the number one that comes up. Whenever somebody's, you're like, hey, Bible says don't be angry. Jesus says whoever is angry, you'll be held liable to judgment. The first thing that comes up is like, well, actually, Paul said be angry and do not sin, so I should be angry, right? And then two sentences later, it sounds like he's saying, hey, don't be angry. And the other interesting thing about that is that he's actually quoting Psalm 4.4, which is in the Old Testament, which has like 200 words for anger versus the New Testament's three different words for anger. And so they all get boiled down. The actual word here is actually sort of trembling. It's sort of like to be shook, to be perturbed, to be agitated from an outside source. So it could be, could be that our one proof text for why we should be angry sometimes is actually a uh, derivation of an Old Testament text that Paul is actually using. And if you go back to how he was understanding and thinking about this psalm, he's actually reading it as like, hey, get shook by the world, get trembled, get broken, sort of get agitated, get frustrated. Those things are going to happen to you because the world's messed up, but don't sin. Two sentences later, put away anger from you. Anyway. Josh's rant over. Here's what's interesting about all of this. Jesus here is talking in the Sermon on the Mount. He's in the book of Matthew. This is the first sort of big recorded sermon that uh, Matthew actually gives for us. It seems like it was a long time. We get so much of our theology and understanding Jesus right here from this central passage. And what he feels like he can say to the group of people that are standing right in front of him without any clarification, without any caveats, without any sort of mincing of his words, is whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. So at some level, we've got to be able to sort of name anger and maybe you want to sort of narrow it down to specifically being angry with your brother. Maybe you even want to narrow it down. There are other Bible passages say, like, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So maybe you want to put some sort of time limit on it of it's appropriate for this amount of time, but not this amount of time. But maybe you want to do what I'm doing, which is sort of trying to re- re-understand what anger even is by naming it as something that is unhealthy for me. This is going to be easy for some of us and not for others. Uh, Some of us don't get angry very easily or very often. Some of us, this toxic anger has become a constant companion. I mean, aside from all of the sort of unclarity about like that initial spark of anger that happens when somebody cuts you off in traffic, there are many of us who are sort of like walking around living with anger, just living rent-free in our head. Maybe you're holding a grudge. Maybe you have some sort of long-standing frustration. Some of us uh, are like, man, you better just be glad it hasn't even come to murder yet because I am mad all the time right? Like, it's like the Hulk, like, my secret is I'm always mad kind of thing. And I am here to echo the words of Jesus to say that is not healthy, 
beneficial or beautiful for us in our lives. Not necessarily sure how to rid ourselves of anger. I think that's the challenge of it, and that's another frustration that I have. You know, we sort of, we have our emotional understanding because we're so emotionally intelligent, but man, what happens when that flies in the face of what Jesus is telling us here? Like, what happens when my immediate response is, well, you can't live a life without anger? I saw that in some of the commentaries. They're like, well, you know, you can't do that. Man, what a sad way to respond to Jesus here. I think instead, and the only hope that I've truly found in understanding and sort of trying to grapple with my own anger is actually in preaching the gospel to ourselves. Now, this is something that you do and can and should do as a part of every single sin that you run into, everything that you run into where you say, hey, I am doing this, but I don't want to do this. I am doing this, but I know it's against God's good plan for me in the universe. I am doing this, but I know it is unhealthy for me. The response is always to preach the gospel to yourself. Here's how it works. Someone cuts you off in traffic, and immediately the first feeling that pops up is just anger, rage, frustration at what is happening right in front of you. But in just a moment, you can take a step back, and you can actually remember that you have done so much worse to other people. You have done so many terrible and awful things, and you have been forgiven by the God of the universe for all of those things, and all of a sudden, all of that moral high ground and authority that you have gets ripped right out from under you. All of a sudden, it reframes that entire situation where you're like, do I really have justification to be mad at somebody that they cut me off in traffic? When someone insults you, you have an opportunity in that moment to remember that it doesn't really matter how much that other human being values you because you are valued by the God of the universe so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. And all of a sudden, all of that anger and frustration at feeling devalued in yourself is sucked out of the room because you know you are valued by the God of the universe. Followers of Jesus know this. Whatever has been done to you is not more than you have been forgiven for. I want you to chew on that for just a second. Whatever has been done to you is not more than you have been forgiven for. So whatever someone else inflicts upon you that sort of incites that anger that pops up within you, it's not more than Jesus has already forgiven you for. So what standing do we have left for anger? Jesus continues by getting very practical here. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and re there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. And truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, this is some of the most PBS kind of advice I have ever seen coming out of Jesus' mouth, right? 
And I guess, you know, technically he predates PBS, so I don't think he's, like, taking it from them. But it just feels like, I don't know if any of you else got, you know, we grew up sort of, you know, alternately having cable, depending on whether or not the Disney Channel was run or ABC was running a special on the Disney Channel, you know? So, you know, PBS was kind of our bread and butter. And this feels like the kind of thing where it's like, you know, you could see it on Arthur or something like that. So, like, Arthur's sitting there, and he's trying to work on a test or project or something, and Mr. Ratburn walks up, and he's like, Hey, Arthur, what's going on? And Arthur's like, ah, I can't really focus on this test. And Mr. Ratburn's like, I did see you fighting with DW earlier, right? And Arthur's like, yeah. And he said, I know you're having trouble focusing on this test, Arthur. Do you think it's possibly because you're so mad at DW? And Arthur's like, maybe. And Mr. Ratburn says, well, why don't you pause this and actually go and talk to DW first and then come back, and then we can work on this test together. And Arthur goes, thanks, Mr. Ratburn. I appreciate that. And then walks off and reconciles with DW and then comes back to the test, right? That sounds what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, hey, when you're coming, you're trying to offer your gifts. If you're still mad at your brother, why don't you go and fix that before you even come to offer these gifts? It does feel like very, very PBS. It's all intuitive. It's like basic social-emotional intelligence kind of stuff. It's conflict resolution. If you have something against someone, go and be reconciled. Talk about it with them. Don't let it fester inside of you. All of this sort of is like basic human knowledge for us like operating in the world today, right? Jesus is even saying you should try and do it before you worship God. It's interesting uh, that, you know, even in cases, if there are healthy examples of anger, I don't, I don't see sort of any caveats for, like, not doing this reconciliation, for not letting the, the sun go down on your anger. Like, there's sort of, like, time limits, even if there are healthy versions of anger. Jesus is saying, hey, before you go to worship, so every Sunday morning, before you come in here, you need to be reconciled with the people that you're angry with. Before you let the sun go down, you need to be reconciled with these people. When someone insults you, you need to go and reconcile with them. And again, the radioactive, toxic nature of sin comes into play. It's eating us up inside even when we don't feel it. And I believe the reason why he sort of brings up this offering your gifts to the temple is because when we are trying to worship the God of the universe and be fully and completely open to him and commit ourselves to him and allow our souls to have communion with him. And if we have got a sin just sort of like living there inside of us, it is actually inhibiting our ability to be fully connected and fully intimate and fully uh, vulnerable with the God of the universe, even when we have a time of worship. Jesus says, hey, take a step before you even go to the temple and actually go and reconcile it with your brother. Then Jesus takes a step further to say, hey, we should seek to be reconciled with everyone even before we have to go to court. And it kind of sounds like he's like arguing for like a save on courtroom fees, kind of settle outside of court kind of mentality here, right? He says, hey, before you even get to the court, you should actually go to your accuser and try and reconcile it before them. And he's saying that our default opinion in dealing with people is going into a situation, even when there's anger, even when we're unreconciled, going into a situation with the assumption that armed with the way and lifestyle of Jesus, we ought to be able to settle our disputes and our disagreements. And have we given up on that even being an option? I think Jesus is saying that when you live as he wants you to live, when you live in this radical way, then there is always an option for reconciliation. There is always an option to settle. 
Now, that other person may say no. You may, you know, be sort of carried along on the way to court. But what he's actually saying is, hey, you go to that person with the hopes, with the idea, with the dream that you can actually settle before you have to go through all of this other stuff. All of this seems obvious, even childish. I'm comparing it to PBS. And so the question is, why does Jesus feel the need to say this? Why does Jesus feel like he needs to tell us to go and reconcile with your brother? Why does Jesus need to say, hey, try and settle before you even have to go through all of this court stuff? Well, I believe the answer is just as simple as the question. It is because we are so bad at it. For thousands of years, we've been bad at it. For thousands of years, we've been avoidant of conflict. We've been unwilling to reconcile. We've allowed our anger to go on unchecked. Because secretly, deep down, even if we might say the exact opposite, we actually love it. Actually love being angry. Our sinful desire loves revering in it and even working to convince us that our anger is justified and it is good for us and it is healthy and it is noble and we have been wronged and so we must be angry. And then it just, it fills us up. Her anger is kind of like eating unhealthy food. It's almost like trying to live your entire life off of sugar or something. You get this sort of momentary burst that keeps you going. You feel happy. You feel active. You feel like, man, I can do it. I can face the world. And then all of a sudden, you start running out of fuel. Your body has nothing really to run on, and you need another hit, right? And the reason why we are bad at reconciling, the reason why we are bad at letting go of our anger is because we love it too much. So, how do we overcome it? I just have three quick thoughts, and then we'll wrap up. The first step in doing and changing anything is we have to desire the alternative. Now, if there is righteous anger, and there very well might be, like I said, not 100% on any of this, I do think the things that we can say safely as it pertains to Scripture are that righteous anger can probably never be associated to a person. It can be associated to an injustice, not necessarily to a human being. Uh, and so, you know, maybe there is a category in which you can be angry at circumstances and uh, sinful and broken things that are happening in the world, but, but somehow very clearly dissociate that from being even angry at the perpetrators of that evil. I don't see that there's much biblical ground for that. So even in that case, I suppose I should say, maybe, maybe that's like the one sort of exception, but with everything else, we've got to be able to name our anger as something bad and unhealthy for us. That's sort of step number one. You notice Jesus doesn't give you practical tips, tips, right? He's not like, so when you feel a little bit angry, uh, breathe in and then breathe out for six seconds and then your anger will be gone. No, he's not jumping into all of that. He's just saying, hey, this is bad. You'll be liable for judgment, which is the first step in all of this. You've got to be able to recognize and name it as something that is unhealthy for you in your life. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. 
Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.